He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life. What a day, Saturday, August 14, 2021. Some smart people don't sound off all the time. Dan Grossman is very smart, interesting family, great career, but he kind of dropped from public view after being a star in the legislature. He's got a big job with the Environmental Defense Fund, but he doesn't spout off on social media or other venues except today on our show, Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, Dan Grossman. Also, we talk with people that you don't normally hear from. Victoria Smith met her at Ellsworth and Broadway. She's living there, I mean right there, in the heart of Denver. The other heart of Denver, where the 16th Street Mall and Colfax and Broadway all kind of come together, there is a McDonald's unlike any other. Carla Carrillo is the manager of that McDonald's, which just reopened. I think the address is actually 16th and Court Place, but it's famous, infamous, and interesting. My McDonald's, these interviews are fun for me to do, and I meet extraordinary people, and I get to tell Colorado stories. That's what it's all about. Here's a Denver native, Dan Grossman, and Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Enjoy. Welcome. To Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Hello, this is Dan. Dan Grossman, Craig Silverman. Welcome to the podcast. Counselor, how are you? I'm fantastic. More importantly, how are you? Oh, I'm doing just fine, thanks. Doing just fine. Muddling through like everybody else, but yeah, I'm doing just fine. Well, I haven't heard from you in a while. And uh, let me introduce you to the audience, which is Dan Grossman is welcome in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge because he went to law school, got his law degree. You will hear all about it. But he served in the state legislature with distinction, youngest ever minority leader. I think that's still a record. He's a big shot guy, but he went into a different field. He now is the Rocky Mountain Regional Director for the Environmental Defense Fund. Did I get any of that correct? You got all that correct. (laughs) Good job, Craig. Thank you. Now, here's the thing. I really know your father maybe even better than you because I like him so much, and I'm looking at a picture of you, him, and is that your boy with that Santa Cruz shirt on? And a bee on your hat. It yep, was in uh, some Colorado social media, Colorado politics. Yes, it was, and that that was a that was a great evening with uh, with Arnie and my son Aiden at uh, at a Rockies game. Um, yeah, it was that was a, that was a that was a great night. Isn't that the best? And uh, let's talk about your upbringing 
tell everybody uh, where you grew up and about your family. Sure. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a Denver native. I was born here, uh, Rose Hospital, same hospital that, uh, that both my kids were born in. Um, I think that's kind of cool. My, my wife thinks it's kind of pathetic, but you know, whatever. Oh no. Um, oh no. My wife <laughs> thinks it's cool because both those things are true about me. There you go. So, um, so what, what's up with your wife? Anyway, we will get to that. Let's start with you being born at Rose Hospital. Yeah, so I was born and raised over in the Congress Park neighborhood. Uh, I went to Bromwell Elementary School and East High School. Now, Bromwell, um, for it, people who don't know Cherry Creek, it's the Tony Ritzy Elementary School of Denver Public Schools, right? Yeah. It, it is now. It wasn't so much back then, but yes, definitely it is now. Um, it was it starting was to be. I went to Ellis and Ballas, but where'd you go to junior high? I went to Grayland for a couple of years. Oh. Tried the tried the private school no thing for two it. years. Yeah, it didn't it didn't work out so well. So I was part of the first freshman class at East High School. Um, you know, back then, as as you'll remember, Craig, they. Uh, high school's at three years, just sophomore, junior, and senior. And then, uh, and I guess it was 81, 82, um, they shifted to a four-year high school. And so um, I didn't do so great at Grayland. And uh, East seemed like a much better learning environment for me. Unfortunately, Arnie and my mom, Kay, agreed. And uh, I was part of the first freshman class at East and graduated from there in 1986. Well, that's fantastic. My mother, may she rest in peace, was an East High angel, married to a West High dude. Tell us about your parents and where they came from. Were they native Denverites? So my mom was born here, yeah. Uh, Her family moved out to Colorado uh, back in the 20s. Her her mom had uh, tuberculosis, and back then, uh, all the best sanitariums for TV were were here in Denver, and so they they made the migration from North Dakota to Denver, and then my mom was born here. Um, grew up uh, right over by University of Denver, um, and she went to South High and DU, and then uh, and that's where she met Arnie, my dad, and um, they were actually married in the chapel on campus at DU even though my dad's Jewish, but that's okay. <laughs> it all worked out. Yeah, my old man went to DU, and he's Jewish, but DU does have religious roots, right? It does. That's right. That's right. Not Jewish religious roots, but Correct. yes. <laughs> so what is it, um, Methodist or Lutheran, or what is it? I get all one the, of those. Christianity yeah, confuses me. <laughs> those Protestant branches, I can't keep track either. It's terrible. Um but yeah, so Arnie, Arnie actually, uh, he, for those of you who don't know Arnie Grossman, he was, uh, um, he was always a prolific writer and he ended up being the editor of the Clarion, which was the school newspaper at DU. Um, and then after he graduated, he had a, a long, illustrious career in advertising and then kind of made the migration into political advertising. And that's eventually, you know, that was the hook as far as how I started to get interested and involved in politics. And is he still alive and kicking? He is still alive. Uh, he is retired and he's, um, he's kicking back, I guess is, is the right way to say it. Still living here in Denver, living on his own. And um, yeah, he's doing well. And he was a colleague of the late, great Dick Lamb. We're going to get to that. That's one of the main reasons I wanted to talk to Dan Grossman, but 
There are a lot of other reasons because these are momentous times and you are one of the great thinkers. And I'm wondering, you said you didn't do great at Grayland, uh, maybe improved at East, but eventually you became a smart guy. Was that law school related? Um, I think it was, it, it actually started, I kind of had my academic awakening when I uh, attended the University of Kansas. So not too far, about 600 miles down the road, but um, far enough to kind of get away from some bad influences in my life and uh, got to focus on academics and really started to get passionate about both writing. Uh, I had a column at the University of Daily Kansas, which was a school newspaper, so kind of following in Arnie's footsteps. Um, and about politics, and that's how I really started to, to get passionate about public service and uh, influencing. So you became a Kansas Jayhawk, and you came to certain realizations? Yeah, you know, it was time to grow up. It was time to, time to take school seriously and, and figure out what I wanted to do. And uh, like I said, my parents kind of instilled a public service ethic in me, and that's something that I really kind of started to embrace as a college student and decided to study harder and work harder and came back to Denver because, you know, Kansas is great, but four years was plenty. Um, came back to Denver and started law school uh, that next fall at the University of Denver and, uh, yeah, graduated and and practiced law for a long time and, and, and really enjoyed the, uh, the benefits of the education I received both at KU and at DU. Right. I think that law school educated me in innumerable ways. I come from a long line of Denver lawyers. What about you? Were there lawyers in your family? You know, there weren't a lot, Craig. There was, there was one on my mom's side, uh, her grandfather, Patrick Henry Butler, uh, was not only a, a lawyer uh, in North Dakota, but also served in the state legislature there as a Republican uh, back in the uh, back in the early part of the 20th century. Um, and uh, he was someone who, when they moved out here to Colorado, continued his his real estate law practice. Uh, but uh, and, and I have some uncles and cousins who were lawyers too. But wait a uh, second, is that Perry Butler? Patrick Henry Butler. No, I know, but the name. real estate company. I'm, I'm, oh no, <laughs> no, no! I, I wish I that would be Zach great. Perry. Maybe I would. I don't. I never met Butler. I thought maybe that's your relative. But what a cool name, Patrick Henry Butler. Yes, he was. Yeah, and he was a very traditional guy and a, a an old school Republican. You know, back when uh, Republicans were a very different breed of folks and. Um, yeah, we're going An to interesting to before they yeah. went before they went Michigan. Do you speak Michigan enough? Is a Yiddish group, to yes. know that Michigan? Yes, Michigan is a great descriptor of today's GOP. <laughs> I I don't think it's quite strong enough, but we will get to that. But we got to tell your story out of law school. Uh, you enjoyed working as a lawyer, but as I recall, you got in politics at a pretty young age. Yeah, I was uh, I was three years out of law school. I was uh, working in a small firm in Denver, uh, working with a, a few great lawyers at a law firm back then called Stetner, Miller and Cohn. And uh, my mentor was uh, a giant of a man and a giant of a lawyer named, named Bob Cohn. And he was one of the state's leading education lawyers. Uh, How do you spell that last name? C-O-H-N. And uh, Bob represented, you know, a lot of the school districts throughout the state, especially the metro area, 
Um, and we spent uh, a good amount of time uh, driving around the metro area, especially uh, working with school boards and administrators and teachers on all all sorts of legal issues they come up with uh, with public schools in the state. And um, Not that like was a now. great experience. Well, Not can like you imagine being <laughs> doing that job right now, being a legal I, advisor? Wow. I cannot. Uh, the issues have definitely changed. <laughs> um, but it was a great experience. I worked there for about three and a half years. And then um, I had uh, become friendly with Diana DeGette, who at that point uh, was in the state legislature. I'd actually worked on a, a couple of her state house campaigns. And, you know, the generational shift happened when, when Pat Schroeder, the long-serving a uh, great congresswoman from Denver decided to retire uh, from the U.S. House of Representatives. And um, a bunch of folks who were in the legislature, including Diana DeGette, decided that uh, that they would like to try to run to replace her. And that was part of the, uh, the dominoes that fell that led me to a pretty early decision. At the time, I think I was 26. Um, do I stay full-time practicing law or do I start to dabble in politics and took some hand wringing and a, and a few, uh, more than a few conversations with Dick Lamb, who you mentioned earlier, um, you know, pushed me to the decision to, to reach out and, and really try to take, take public service on as, uh, at least a, a large part of my, my career. Let's set the stage. Cause I remember it well, the year was 1996, correct? It was. Yeah. And you remember who was running against each other for president? Uh, that was 1996. So that was Bill Clinton. And, um, oh, my goodness. He's still that alive. Bill, <laughs> Bill Clinton. He's oh, my goodness. He's from the state that you went to college. Oh, that's right. That was Dole. That was Clinton Dole. Uh, that's Dole. right. And who yes. was running against each other for Denver DA in 1996? In 1996, that was um, that was Bill Ritter and Craig Silverman. That's right. I wonder who won. <laughs> now, whatever happened to Bill Ritter? Anyway, he's a great guy. He's been in Craig's lawyer's lounge. It only took us about 10 years to go back to being friends. But that's politics. What about it, Chuck it Michaels, the guy you beat up on in a primary? <laughs> Chuck was a great guy. Um, he's a little bit older than me. Um, spent what, a little bit more him? time. You talk about him in the past tense. <laughs> well, I haven't seen him in such a long time. I have no idea what he's up to these days. But... Uh, uh, a decent guy, uh, a good race, and I was I was very fortunate to come out on top. Did he get mad at you? Was it close? It was it was not as close as I thought it was going to be. You know, I was this this young snot nosed kid, right, uh, running for a seat that he felt like because he'd been so involved in the party for decades that that he deserved. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I, I didn't really after that race, I never really heard from Chuck much. Right, you buried him. Way to go, man. You know, it's uh, it's one of those things. You were a bulldozer, and you kept running. Let's flesh out your political career, because you were still in your 20s when you got elected? 
I was. I was in my 20s. At the time, I was the youngest in the in the legislature. Um, you have to be 25 in Colorado. Um, so there weren't too many younger folks that were interested in, in serving yet. But um, yeah, I was definitely the youngest in my caucus in, in the Colorado House. And back in those days, uh, the Democrats in the legislature, we were in the wilderness. I think we had 24 seats out of 65 when I was elected. Um, and let's describe, had, tell everybody your district. So my district was East Central Denver. So the neighborhoods, the neighborhoods where I live, like Congress Park and Cheeseman Park and Capitol Hill and south through Cherry Creek and Country Club to Wash Park. Um, that was generally the district. Right. Little and pieces once of, you won the primary, of, was it since you were going to win? I mean, there was a day when Republicans could compete, but did you have a Republican opponent once you got by Chuck Michaels? There was. There was a Republican on the ballot, but uh, didn't put up much of a fight. Uh, the numbers were, were pretty tough back then. <laughs> yeah, I found that out. Just, I ran yeah. as an independent, but Bill Ritter smartly said, oh, he's a Republican. I said, no, I'm not. I'm really independent, but... It didn't matter. You, you, and, and, and you, you are, and you are very independent, and that's what made you an attractive candidate. But um, yeah, in Denver, it doesn't. That doesn't help. Yeah, show me where an independent wins anything. Although, though, there was a woman from the Western Slope serving in the legislature. I think as an independent, but not many, right? Right, and and she didn't she didn't run as an independent. She she right. ran and then switched. So, um, yeah, there's not a lot of there's not folks in Colorado um, being unaffiliated and making it far into partisan politics. Right. It's still Democrats be Republicans as our friend Dick Lamb. I mean, I consider him a friend. He was so nice to me. We can get into it. But my God, I was thinking about you and your father, and I just wondered how close you were with the late Dick Lamb and what it was like growing up and him being one of your father's best buddies yeah you know they were they were very close friends and and dick was always so kind to my dad uh and generous with his time and and everything else and that extended to me and so he was always uh very open and accessible uh to my whole family but um especially to me they were they were running buddies and they would um they would do races and marathons and they would run the, they would run in the neighborhood, um, you know, with a couple of, of, uh, annoyed secret service guys, uh, telling close behind and would make the rounds, uh, of Capitol Hill. Um, and I remember my, my first real memory of seeing the governor in person was when he paid an un, unexpected visit to our house after one of their runs and I was sitting at the kitchen table uh, as I was wont to do on Saturday mornings watching cartoons in my underwear and in comes the, the great governor lamb. How old were you? Uh, I think I was seven or eight at the time. <laughs> and uh, I didn't know what to do so I hid under the kitchen table thinking that they would just come and go but uh, he decided to have a prolonged conversation with my dad in the kitchen and then noticed me <laughs> I didn't go to the table and said, you know what? It's okay. You can come on out. I've seen worse. Huh. <laughs> but he was such a great guy and just always so kind. And then, you know, much, much later in life when, when I was at KU, I think I was a junior 
Um, so this is probably like 1989. Um, he was, you know, out of the governor's office and on to DU and, and his prolific uh, writing career. And he had been asked by the um, uh, the Kansas Democrats in Topeka to come out and give a talk. And for those of you who know Kansas, you know that uh, Topeka is about a half an hour drive from Lawrence. And he sent a car from Topeka to pick me up uh, at the frat house that I was living in and drive me back to Topeka to be his guest at this dinner and introduce me to all these legislators. And um, it was just such an amazing thing that obviously he had no obligation to, to do anything like that, but that's just the kind of guy he was just so generous and always looking for ways to help, especially younger folks who were interested in the same things that he was and just such a great mentor from, from a very, very young age. Wow. He was a very generous person. I, I had him on the radio several times. He was in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. A lot of people don't remember that he was a lawyer and he had he gone was, to yeah. Bolt Hall, UC Berkeley's excellent law school. Did he? Did, were you aware of that? I did know he went to Bolt Hall. And, and uh, he, when I was thinking about going to law school, he was one of the one of the guys who really encouraged me to do it. And, you know, lots of those conversations were, you know, he, he saw the law as a way, not only, you know, as a career, uh, and not only as an interesting intellectual challenge, but he really saw it as a means of positively influencing the community. Uh, the state, the country, and the world, and 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 I think that was true for him. He got a great education, as you mentioned. He went to Bolt Hall. Um, he he was a lawyer for the Civil Rights Commission here in in, in Colorado, um, and then you know made the same decision I did, which is yeah, you know, politics. Well, what what better way to try to influence uh, and 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 improve. Uh, the community and the state than, than actually getting involved firsthand in politics. And, and so, yeah. He was full I, as, of as contradictions. A, I mean, you'd have to state the issue and he might surprise you. That's oh, why yes. in the end he left the Democratic Party and he said, I, I'm going to run as an independent or under some other label. He, he was certainly somebody who was not afraid to step away from the Dems. I admired that even though like most people who run third party, he was not successful. That's right. But, but you know, he had kind of a unique view into uh, the perils of, of hyper-partisanship. Um, you know, he was, he was a true civil libertarian, right? I mean, he was one of the pioneers of that here in the state of Colorado on women's issues, on civil rights issues. Um, but at, at but that didn't make him a liberal, and and especially later in life, you know, nobody nobody would accuse Governor Lamb of being a liberal uh, when he was at DU and espousing his views on immigration and and things like that. But it, but it was never the thing about Dick is that it was it was never emotional. It was never it was always very well thought out and reasoned. And even though I definitely didn't agree with him on his immigration stances. Um, some of his some of his positions were uh, were really hard to argue with, and that is, you know, the sustainability not of just our communities and our country, but of the world, and how, you know, migration is something that is is going is and will continue to be a huge burden 
uh, for countries all over the world, including the United States. And um, I, I, I refuse to take that next step and say, so we need to crack down on immigration in the United States. I just don't think that 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 that's the solution that the of the problems that he's raising. But he had a you know he had a very clear environmental ethic that that uh, again was ahead of his time. And his stances on immigration were, were deeply rooted in that. I, I don't believe that he had a racist bone in his body. It's just that uh, he viewed he viewed this in terms of the sustainability of of, of our state and our nation. And and uh, even though I disagree with him, there there was some logic to it. Did you two ever go at it at the kitchen table? I assume you had more than underwear on. <laughs> You know, we never did, uh, but Arnie and, and Dick certainly did, especially later in life uh, over immigration issues. And uh, oh no, Dick I had, hope it didn't get too personal or angry. <laughs> it sometimes it would, but you know, like all good friends, they forgive and forget and move on. Nice. Um, and uh, you know, my dad, you know, still still counted him as one of his his closest friends when he died, and. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of sad. It's 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 a generation, as you know, that's uh, as as time goes on, we lose more and more folks from that generation, and um, a lot of them, like Dick, just had such a profound impact on the countless people like you and me that he influenced, but also on the the legal and political landscape that they left in their wake. Oh my God! And you said that he was usually reasonable and all that. One issue that was not lockstep with the Democrats of that time, and certainly not with the Democrats of today, with the possible exception of Joe Biden and people like him, but Dick Lamb had thought about the death penalty, and he decided that it was sad but necessary, and he appointed judges who he thought were going to uphold the laws written by the state legislature, and the voters of Colorado have weighed in on this. Anyway, he got pissed at some judges, and I was out of office. I, I think I was. Anyway, I got a call from him, and he said, I'd like to pick your brain about this, Craig. And pick my brain, he did. And then I wrote him some stuff, and darned if I didn't see a lot of it right back in a Denver Post op-ed. Do you remember all that? I do remember all that. Um and, you know, <laughs> again, he's so thoughtful about it, as are you, Craig. And, um, you know, that's something that, that that I think everybody struggles with. I certainly have throughout throughout my legal and political career. Um, but, you know, I will say this consistent with his with, with his person, with his realistic personality, um, he he looks at the death penalty not just as a moral issue, not just as a criminal justice issue, but he he looks at it from a, from a realist perspective. Um, there are there there are undoubtedly circumstances in which the social contract between people and their government is so violated in such an awful and terrible way that why would you want to take away uh, one tool for that societal retribution? And that's not a popular way to think about the death penalty, but it's 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 one of those one of those uniquely Dick Lamb ways to to think about these things. And um, I'm glad he was getting advice from you on on how to couch some of his arguments. Um, but I was uh, surprised how personal he got because apparently he had spoken with these 
would be jurists and had satisfied himself that they would follow the law. And a couple of them didn't, and he called them out personally. I appointed you, but you're disappointing me. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, right. And again, that's, that's probably an area where, where he and I would disagree about, you know, judicial independence and, um, you know, appointments don't mean you're beholden to anybody. But uh, but at the same time, he had some very strong views about that issue. I, I, I totally understand that. And I'll say that, you know, uh, my own views on these issues have, I, I've struggled with over time, as I've mentioned. Uh, when I was in the legislature, I, I felt very strongly that we needed to have a, a strong capital punishment law on the books. And when when the courts would strike down particular aspects of it, I was you know one of the first in line to uh, to try to fix it. Um, but I will say that uh, as time has gone on, and I, I'm I'm removed from the the political turmoil around the issue, and we're we're grappling with with the issues of systemic racism and the institutional injustices based on race, especially, uh, but also you know socioeconomic status. Um, and how that is, how those issues are so complicated and exacerbated by the ultimate punishment. I've had a lot of second thoughts, and and I'm, I'm not afraid to, to tell you and your listeners that I'm, I'm kind of kind of conflicted about it, notwithstanding your good arguments and the governor's good arguments. See, that's part of you growing up over in East High and Grayland. That education, no, it's a tough issue, <laughs> without a doubt. But uh, and, and the best argument is. That if you got guys like Bill Barr and Donald Trump in charge of accelerating those moves, I don't trust them. And that yeah. may be what it comes yeah. down to. But I will say this about Dick Lamb, his appointment of Norm Early really was a domino that affected my life. Did you remember that? Dale Tooley stepping down? Heck, I bet your I, family may have known Dale Tooley. Yeah, yeah. Marnie was close with Dale, uh, a little less close with Norm, but I certainly watched you and Norm a lot. That was kind of some of my formative years and the way you guys ran things in the DA's office, and uh, I admired him a great deal. And who did Dick Lamb have as three possibilities when Dale Tooley stepped down to pursue the mayoral run, ultimately defeated by Federico Pena? But do you remember who the other two finalists were? Mm, I don't, Craig. I'm the sorry, I don't. Dick Spriggs went on to be a Denver District Court judge. But uh, the other yeah, finalist was a woman named Beth McCann, who is That's just right. like Ahab finally caught the white whale, <laughs> and she is the DA in Denver, and she just cruised to re-election, and uh, she's got she a big was, job. She was, yeah, and she was also one of the finalists when you and Ritter were up. Is that, am I remembering no, that right? She, no, she ran when Mitch ran. She ran against Helen and John Walsh. And uh, I think she, yes. Anyway, she's been trying every which way she could. Right. So, yes. Right. When Norm Early went, left yes. the job, then Roy Romer appointed Bill Ritter and all of that. But it's amazing how lives get intertwined. And I will say this, that Dick Lamb was a good listener and the legislature, before you got in it, in the early 80s, thought there's too much arbitrariness in Colorado sentencing, and they were going to come out with sentencing guidelines. Minnesota had passed it, as I recall, and some people liked it, and Dick Lamb maybe liked it. He didn't. 
We got word that he would like our input. And Bill Ritter and I, when we were young chief deputies, we advocated against it. And he ended up agreeing with us and thanking us for our input. I'd, I just, he would go out and solicit opinions from people, which is a pretty smart way of doing things. A lost art, one, one might argue. <laughs> right, right. But, so, but yeah, yeah that, that was the kind of guy that he was, for sure. And uh, I, I want to reach out to you because you've turned your life into an area of expertise that I'm kind of embarrassed to say has never been my focus. I say, look, I studied political science at Colorado College, not any of the hard sciences. What do I know about climate change? But my God, this summer in Denver and around the world, what's going on? You've dedicated your life to this cause. Tell everybody what attracted you to it and what you do and how bad of a crisis are we facing? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it is it is a generational crisis that we're facing. And it's one of those things that that it's hard to, to wrap your brain around, except for times like this, where we have so much going on with, with regards to extreme weather across the world. Um, but climate change is, is the problem that's going to, to define our generation uh, and, and how we respond to it. And so far, we haven't done a very good job. And uh, I, I would say that it was a it was a fairly easy decision for me when I when I left politics uh, to go down this road. And when I was in the legislature, I worked a lot on energy and uh, environmental issues as well as water issues, and so I knew I wanted to keep working uh, in those issues, even though I wasn't down at the Capitol anymore. Um, but even then, which was 15 years ago, just 15 years ago. Uh, the climate crisis wasn't as as uh, profoundly front page news as it is becoming uh, today, and that's sad. Uh, it's sad because we are experiencing the impacts of it uh, firsthand. Uh, but as as difficult as it is for us, you know, in Denver, Colorado, it's much much more difficult for folks in in other areas where. Uh, the impacts are so much more extreme and the ability for uh, for other nations and, and communities and less developed nations to adapt and be resilient are much more handicapped than we have here in the United States. The, the impacts are, are much, much worse. Um, Dan, I went to a continuing legal education put on by a group about climate change and the differences we can make. And I'll tell you, it was one of the scariest hours of CLE I've ever had because a guy got up there and said, look, all the shit that's going on right now, this is going to be the best year. It's going to get worse. And we're at that point in the graph where we're going to look back at 2021 as the good old days. That scared the crap out of me. Is it true? It, it, it is true. Um I would say that it's not too late, uh, and that we're, you know, that a lot of a lot of people across the globe are working very hard to get us back on the right track where this can be sustainable and we can stave off the most serious impacts of climate change. But we've already locked in so much warming uh, through our carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas emissions that it is going to get worse before it gets better. 
the question is, is, is it too late? Have we reached the tipping point, you know, where we lose the permafrost in the Antarctic, or the Arctic, for example, uh, which, where so much more methane is then leaked into the atmosphere that we get to a point where it's just it's just too late. And we will continue to warm and warm and warm until the planet becomes largely uninhabitable. Our hope is that, is that we can turn things around. And the Biden administration is taking a leadership role, uh, bringing the international community back to the bargaining table, uh, setting policies that get us on the right track, whether it be, you know, transforming the transportation sector with electric vehicles and changing the way that we power our homes, um, taking a hard look at oil and gas and the methane emissions that the oil and gas sector uh, spew into our atmosphere. These are all things that, that serious uh, serious folks in our government and governments across, across the globe are, are addressing. And so I'm hopeful that we'll be able to to make enough progress that we'll be able to stave off the most pernicious impacts. But for the for the near term, I think we're going to continue to see severe storms in our area, severe drought with flooding, um, and it's gonna it's gonna be worse before it gets better. Uh, it's it's sad. Come on, give us hope. Isn't there some innovation? <laughs> Don't we have some great leaders? Jared Polis, I went to his inaugural. And he said, we're going to fix it. We're going to make money doing it. That guy's a capitalist. And is that pie in the sky or is it possible? Well, of course it's possible. And, and bringing, bringing to the battle the, you know, the great innovators and entrepreneurs across this country to, to, uh, to, help, to help us transform, again, the way that we power our cars and our homes and uh, all of those things that uh, that we take for granted every day, those are things that are going to have to be transformed. And so, yes, it's going to take entrepreneurship, but it's also going to take political will. And I would say that even even the uh, uh, even the governor of our great state uh, has some work to do. Um, and we're hopeful that that, that he will. Um, but uh, but we've got work to do. And you know, I, 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 the hope is that we have it. At, uh, you know, in the in President Biden, we have. An administration that is serious about this and, and willing to make hard decisions such that we can make progress. And so I think that's something to be hopeful about for sure. Is EDF pushing from the left on Biden and Polis? So, you know, it's interesting. EDF is is generally considered to be a fairly moderate <laughs> As far as environmental groups go, we're, we're we're usually the ones that are you know in the room making deals, uh, not the ones you know clamoring and and picketing and uh, and suing. Although we do a little bit of of all those things, but our our role has always been to find the solutions that are durable and effective and grounded in science and economics. And so we we are. I wouldn't say we're pushing from the left. I would say we're pushing very hard, and our advocacy is is more urgent given the times. Um, uh, but again, we want we want these solutions to be effective, and we want them to be durable. Uh, and so that means working with not just the politicians, but with folks in industry to help us solve these problems uh, again, so that we can come up with not just reasonable and effective, but durable solutions. Is Jared Polis uh, a national, maybe even international leader on this, or am I putting up, him up there too high? I think you might be getting a little bit ahead of yourself. Okay. I think that he's done his his administration has done some good things, but uh, um, there are some things that he hasn't done. Um, you know, he came into office promising to act on climate. Uh, he, it, he's he's 
put forth some some pretty solid uh, greenhouse gas reduction goals. Uh, the legislature has directed him and made those goals mandatory, uh, which is good. And his administration is a little bit lagging as far as, as doing the things that the hard decisions they, that they need to isn't make. Isn't that good politics? Track. You have to get elected. You know all about that. I mean, of course, maybe of course. in his second term. Are governors term limited at two now? Dick Lamb served they are. Three. Right. So maybe yeah, in his Dick- second term, we'll see a more aggressive Jared Polis. What about? The Democratic team, I've rarely seen a stronger team. Bill Weiser, Jenna Griswold, Jonah Goose, Diana DeGette, Jason Crow, our pal Eddie Perlmutter, he needs to get on one of these committees, show off his legal chops. But am I wrong? It's pretty strong crew from Colorado right now. Oh, it is. It is. It is amazing. We have such a great bench of, of Democratic leaders and uh, it's great to see, you know, Jason Crow and Jonah Goose and Diana to get, you know, with, with their prominent roles in the in the impeachment proceedings, um, representing Colorado well and giving us lots to be proud of. That's for sure. And of course, Ed Perlmutter, uh, first of all, such a great guy as a human being. Second of all, such an effective legislator. I'm so glad that he's representing us in Congress. Right. Did you were you surprised at any of them? Who do you think's the next breakout star? Give us your prediction. Do any of these people have national potential or maybe U.S. Senate seats someday? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the sexy pick is Joe Nagoose. He's young. He's uh, incredibly bright. Understands politics very very well. Represents his district very well. Is ingratiated. Yeah, and ingratiated himself to uh, to leadership and the Democratic leadership in the House, but also is able to you know reach across the aisle uh, when it makes sense. And um, you know this 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 uh, this bill that he's working on with with Congressman Buck on uh, the Japanese internment camp and making it uh, uh, memorializing it. Uh, I think is is a great example of ways to break through the partisan divide and just show people that, you know, we can work together. And so a guy like Joe, I think, has a very, very bright future. Before we leave politics, what about oil and gas? Do they still have the power? Are they the ones who are most responsible for the failure to recognize science and climate change? Are they the bad guys here? So, you know, it's hard to place blame on, on, you know, one particular industry, but I will say that they, they have a large amount of responsibility for where we are now. Um, and, you know, they are coming around, you know, the larger companies are coming around and are, you know, wanting to do things like participate in a process to get methane emissions under control, um, you know, even going so far as working with EDF on regulations at the federal level and here in Colorado. Um, so there's progress being made, but there's still a lot of companies out there and their trade associations that are dragging their feet and, you know, are kind of, of you know, they're kind of a few decades behind and are still, you know, not wanting to see regulation, anything that would impede their ability to make a buck. Uh, so those folks are still out there, and that's that's continuing to be a problem. But I would say overall, the trajectory and industry is going in the right direction. They want to be part of the solution, not just a part of the problem. Um, the question is, is it too late? You know, are we going to be able to have a, an economy that is 
that has continued to be powered by fossil fuels that they, you know, that they produce and still be a sustainable planet? You know, that's that's kind of an open question right now. I think in the long term, the answer is definitely no. But in the shorter term, is there a way that, uh, you know, through industry practices and regulations that they can be part of the solution? I think so. I think so. And so it's it's, it's gratifying to me that, that so many, especially the larger companies, are, are willing to have this conversation. Right. They have to live here too, right? And we have to innovate right. our way out of it. And even if we pass the greatest policies in Colorado, we're just Colorado. And what about China, India? The whole world needs to do its part. And to me, that feels a little hopeless. And in a way, it's like the gun argument. I've been a lawyer for about 40 years thinking about gun issues because so often I watched you know, the homicide unit in action and there was somebody with bullet holes in them. I saw violence. We had the summer of violence while I was a prosecutor. And back then they said, well, yeah, but there are so many guns in society and we can't really do this. But we passed an assault weapon ban and it worked for 10 years, but it sunsetted. But now I hear a lot of people say, well, with the AR-15s, there are too many of them. It's like climate change. Well, we waited now there's nothing we can do. I know you thought about this gun issue while you were in the legislature, and what are you thinking about it now? You know, I I did think about it, and I I, I remember when I was when I was a young member of the House of Representatives and the Judiciary Committee, and I, I ran a bill uh, to ban assault weapons in the state of Colorado, and. Um, you know, it didn't make it out of committee. And I had, you know, I had Bill Ritter come down and, and testify in favor of it. I had a couple other DAs come down and testify in favor. Uh, I had the sheriff's department in Jeffco uh, come down and show the weapon that was used to, to murder a state trooper in a parking lot um, to just kind of hammer home the, uh, the, uh, you know, just the, the tragedy that these kind of weapons of war wreak on our streets and to our members of law enforcement. Um, and, you know, that bill went down on a party line boat. But you're right. We made progress. Uh, I think objectively we can say that the assault weapons ban saved lives. Uh, gun crime went down. Um, and then when it was allowed to expire, it spiked back up again. And... It just, you use the word hopeless. I don't think, at least at the national level, we've seen the resolve that we need to address the, the issue uh, of gun violence. And that's something that's going to continue to, to plague our communities. We're lucky to live in Colorado where we are making a little bit of progress, not as much as I would like. Um, but universal background checks and uh, putting some restrictions on the types of uh, bump stocks and ammunition clips that can be uh, magazines that can be used uh, and, and possessed in the state as progress in my view. Um, but a long way to go. Another problem is spinning out of control. Seemingly, just as Dick Lamb is going to be laid to rest, there's going to be a public ceremony on August 31st. Eric Sonderman circulated that on social media. And I'm sure we'll hear more about it. We'll be talking more as we lead up to August 31st. And it's so cool to have Dan Grossman on, who grew up with Dick Lamb as 
kind of part of the family. We've already talked about immigration, and Dick Lamb was pretty outspoken about the unsustainability of unchecked illegal immigration, and it's going on big time right now. And is that Joe Biden's fault? And what should we do about it? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those perplexing issues. We have, I think what pretty much everybody would say is a failed immigration system. And when I say everybody, I mean the people who rely on migrant labor, um, conservatives, uh, liberals. I think we can all agree that our immigration system is, is, is failing. And it isn't until we fix that legal immigration system so that we can have a more accessible, a more just, and more fair way for people to come to this country legally, whether it be as, as refugees or as, as immigrants wanting to work and contribute here. Until we get that fixed, I don't think we have a hope of, of, of addressing the, the problem at the border. Um, it's heartbreaking to see these families that most of whom are fleeing, are, are fleeing horrible conditions in their home countries in Central, South, Central and South America, coming here, um, you know, enduring unspeakable hardships to them and their families uh, to be held in, 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 in these facilities along the border. And, and, you know, Joe Biden's done a much better job than Trump did as far as trying to keep families together, uh, trying to, to show some humanitarian regard for the folks who've made this journey. But um, it, it's you, you can't look at the situation at the border and not just uh, have your heart break for the, for the folks who are just trying to come, you know, get a better life. Absolutely. For that, that but but uh, what about Denver Public Schools? How do they handle unchecked immigration? It's hard to dig out from under, in my opinion, and I think Dick Lamb made a lot of good points. I don't want to argue with you about that because I want to talk to you about something that's hitting your old district, probably near where you live even today. It's affecting everybody in Colorado. And I was just in Austin, Texas at a voting rights rally and homeless people are big part of Austin. They're becoming a big part of Denver and there are camps in East Denver What's going on, Dan Grossman? Yeah, I mean, uh, it seems like, at least from where from where I sit, it seems like the pandemic uh, so exacerbated the housing crisis in this country and in our state, and we're seeing more and more of these uh, of these folks who are, you know, forced into a situation where they're camping out in places that. It's, you know, it's not safe for anybody to have them camping out in. And so I'm, I'm gratified to see people like Michael Hancock directing resources to uh, to provide more uh, affordable housing and, and other alternatives for folks who are experiencing homelessness. Um, but I don't think any of us have the answers yet. And, and it's tough, especially if you're in a community that's directly impacted with folks who are living in an unsafe way. Um, you know, it's hard. It's hard. Uh, the, the sweeps that that, uh, that Denver had been doing, are those are heartbreaking to watch these folks who, who have next to nothing lose that next to nothing and be forced to move on. Um, it, it's really hard. And I know that there's a lot of anger in the community because of, of how these folks tend to impact our, our quality of life. Well, tell but, us uh, about East Denver. You're 
closer to that than I am. I mean, some people, liberals, right near where John Hickenlooper lives, right? And is, how's that camp going over? Is it permanent? And what does it do to the neighborhood? I don't think it's permanent. And I think that the impact on the, the Park Hill neighborhood has been negligible. And so I think it was a lot of hysteria is not the right word. There was a lot of concern. And I think right, rightfully so that folks who live in that neighborhood are concerned about these issues. But um, at the end of the day, it's it's better to have it in an organized fashion where needs are attended to and sanitation can be addressed as opposed to, you know, the slapdash ad hoc you know, camps that spring up in other places that aren't safe for anybody. They aren't safe for the community in which they're located. They're not safe for the people who live there. Um, no yeah, it's answer. a vexing issue. Yeah, it's a vexing issue. But I do think that I do think that the state and the city are starting to take a closer look and, and devote more resources to it, which are which are desperately needed. Here's the nice thing about modern times: they are clarifying. Because everybody's wondered, guys stuck in the middle like me, well, what is the right party, the Republicans or the Democrats? They're both a little sugar to use that word again, but it's now clear the Democrats were the choice. And whereas I was independent, it seems to me there's really only one big American political issue right now, and that is, are you with Donald Trump and his band of whatever you want to call them, or are you on the other side? And I'm on the other side. Don't you think Donald Trump has at least clarified our politics? He's clarified it in a deeply disturbing way, right? And, and, and I would even make it more fundamental than the way you described it. it. It feels to me like you're either for the rule of law and democracy or you're not. Correct. And I have lots of good friends that I worked with at the legislature over the years who are Republicans, who I viewed as principled conservatives, who over the last few years have taken a stand against the rule of law and democracy. And that's what's so disturbing about it to me. I have several who haven't. I have several who have stuck to their principles and said, you know, I am a conservative, but this is this is bad for America. It's bad for the future of democracy everywhere. And and I would say that that takes a lot of courage for Republicans and conservatives to do that. And I would hope that if the shoe were on the other foot, that I would be more like them than the ones who capitulate to the cults of personality that is Donald Trump. Right. Speaking of capitulation, I don't know if you listen to Denver Trump radio. Talk about disappointments. People who hold themselves out as morally superior can back Donald Trump. Give me a break. And if it's, you know, and then then uh, Peter Boyles on Denver Trump Radio, he sees Donald Trump and he says, I love this guy. He's a birther like me. He's a carnival barker. What's not to like? But then when he lost the election and when the crazy talk started to permeate Denver Trump Radio, at least Boyles was smart enough to realize this is a bunch of bullshit and we're going to get our ass sued. And he backed away from it. But a guy named Corcoran, who I call Pompadour occasionally because he has a nice Pompadour, a nice head of hair. Now he's a Republican committee man and he got Boyles to back down to the point that Boyles said, I'm capitulating. I won't bring it up anymore. Of course, he went back on that and that's the only interesting thing really about that program, to see them fighting about Donald Trump and the big lie. But this big lie is ongoing, and I'm worried about 
what they're going to try to do next in 2022 and 2024. What about you, Dan? I am too. I am too. And, you know, either outcome is bad. Either they're going to kill the Republican Party for generations, which is what I hope happens. Not that that's a great outcome, but it's what I hope happens because compared to the alternatives that they succeed and kill democracy. Right. So of course I'm on the side of let's get rid of the let's get rid of the Republican Party and start over and let's have a real political realignment in this com- in this country. There are so many conservative causes that I have sympathy for. Um and it is it is nearly impossible for me to feel that way in today's political environment just given given the partisan toxicity that is going on. We're we're a much better country when we can have a legitimate debate about ideology and the issues of the day. But when you can't agree on the simple fact that our institutional democracy is, is worthy of our uh, is worthy of our respect um, and and should trump electoral advantage, um, until we can get back to that that point, we can't even have the conversations around ideology and the issues of the day, and that's that's what's that's what's scary. Right, me. And, and you know there was some great Republican leadership back in the day, men I respected: Bob Beaupre, Bill Owens, Hank Brown. Right, and they're all still yeah. alive. Yeah, and w- where are they? I mean. They can say, well, that's easy for you to say. Well, it wasn't always easy for me to see, to say, but I, I got fed up and I couldn't hold it in. Charlottesville, Helsinki, my God, what are you backing here? I thought he might be an independent Trump. He came from New York. He hadn't taken real conservative positions. But when I saw what he said and what he did, and now it's gone so much further where he is directly attacking the rule of law and it's come out that he had a coup planned and all these, you know, Trumpsters in the media were saying, oh, they're trying to impeach him. It's a coup. The guy planning the coup was Donald Trump. And now the receipts are in. Yet I can't believe that smart people who I used to respect say, hey, no big deal. Nothing to see here. Isn't it shocking? It is shocking. It is shocking, you know, because so so few of those people who you and I both know and respect have stood up and said anything. And that's, you know, it's it's sad. Uh, it's scary. Um, and again, as you said just a few minutes ago, because it, it is easy for me to say, right, because I've always been on this side. <laughs> Um, but I would hope that if I were ever on the other side and if we had a Democratic leader uh, wreaking the kind of havoc and damage that this guy has, has wreaked on our country, uh, that I would stand up and say no. Um, you know, looking at somebody like Mitt Romney, you know, somebody who I who I definitely didn't vote for and, and thought that he ran a terrible campaign for president, but you always got the feeling like at, 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 you know, at base, he was a decent guy. Absolutely. And, and would stand up up for little, but where's George W. Where are the Bush, especially now that George P got dissed by Trump. Where are they? Oh, what, what an obscene story that was with, with George P just, uh, obscene. And it shows that it shows that Donald Trump has loyalty to nobody other than Donald Trump. 
and he will, you know, he'll send anybody that he'll, he, he will, he will sell anybody down the river in his name. And that's exactly what he did to that guy. And, uh, you know, it's just desserts. Let's go back to a better man, Dick Lamb, the late great Dick Lamb. You know, when he left the Democratic Party, how did you feel about it? Some people would say that's disloyalty, but tell us about Dick Lamb and I don't know how he did the last couple of years. I hope they weren't too rough. And I hope that he still had his wits about him enough to condemn Donald Trump. Did he? He did. He did. And, you know, he had his wits about him until, you know, from, from what I hear from his family, he had his wits about him until until he died. And, and that's classic Dick. He just, you know, the brain's always, always moving, always thinking, always uh, being creative and curious and and interested um you know it was interesting when he when he decided to leave the party and run as an independent for president my first reaction was well, you know well that's terrible you know somebody should talk to him and change his mind but i will also remember at about that same time i was having some some real questions about uh about the two-party system and and how things have become so polarized, even even back then, even pre-Trump. And, you know, I'm talking about the, the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, Newt Gingrich where, time. Yeah. And, and where, you know, where the Democratic Party seemed to be completely owned by the teachers unions and the labor unions. And, um, right. Um, in, in a way that wasn't necessarily great for public policy. And the right seemed to be owned by the evangelicals in the business community. And so we would go down to the to the legislature and, and most, you know, most members would be fighting those issues because those are the folks who, who sent them there. And for people like me who, you know, I, I thought I had good career, but of course I was the snot nosed kid, right? I had the right the right solutions for everything, regardless of whether the unions agreed with me or not, or whether the teachers agreed with me or not. And so, and we were, you know, we were kind of the, the, the folks who were working on those types of things were, were immediately, you know, taken to the woodshed. And so this was going on, going on around the same time as Dick Lamb was having his issues with the, with the Democratic Party. And so although I was really disappointed, I also had some sympathy for, for the, the demons that he was fighting. Well, let's end this interview talking about Dick Lamb. And you can't talk about Dick Lamb without discussing his front role in a couple of things. Number one, the Olympics. Was that a good call by Dick Lamb or a bad call? You know, I, th- I think it was it was the first time really that um, environmental issues were kind of brought to bear in such a, a such a prominent way to a to a situation that wasn't centrally environmental, right? I mean, the environmental movement had started for sure, and there was there were a lot of issues going on with regards to pesticides and um, other pollution and things like that. And, but the Olympics was not an environmental issue, right? But Dick saw it as, you know, what impact is this going to have on our state? And I think one of the reasons why he settled here with his family is because he had such a great love for the outdoors in Colorado. Uh, climbing 14ers until his right. 60s he was one and of 70s. those Midwesterners from Wisconsin who are just amazed by our mountains, can't get enough of right. them. 
Right. And I think he, he, you know, he personally felt like that this was going to have such a dramatic impact on our quality of life here. And, and, and remember back then, Denver was still a growing city. It wasn't, wasn't the huge center of the West that it is now. And I think he felt like this was just going to take us in the wrong direction. And in some ways it didn't matter at the end of the day, looking back, it didn't matter. We still got all the growth and development without having the privilege of having hosted the Olympics. But I think at the time when we just didn't have the infrastructure, uh, we didn't have the resources to be able to build the kinds of things that were going to be needed for that. Um, and so, yeah, I'm sympathetic to where he was on it. But again, I think it was really visionary because he was bringing the environmental issues into an issue that wasn't centrally about the environment. And, and in a lot of ways, I think he was right. He was ahead of his time on abortion. That was the lead in the New York Times. I don't know if that surprised you, but... Colorado was at the forefront of a woman's right to choose, and it was championed by a young legislator, sort of like your title. He did it. That was consequential, his abortion legislation. Did he ever back away from that, or was he always proud? Yeah, I did it, and I'm, I'm glad I did. He was always proud about that. That was, that was a central piece of his legacy. He was always proud about that. And like I said, he was a he was a true civil libertarian and, and he fought, you know, all the way through his career, even in his writing when he was, you know, being conservative on things like immigration, he was still fundamentally about the civil rights of of, of folks. And uh, he viewed rightfully so, he viewed abortion as a civil rights issue. Um, and one that uh, that he was very passionate about and way, way ahead of his time. And his wife was right along. Dottie Lamb, yeah. you must know her very well. I hardly know her at all. I read her columns, and I know she wanted to be a senator at one point, but how is she doing, and would you agree they had a wonderful relationship? They did. They had a they had an amazing marriage and a wonderful relationship and, and raised two great kids, Heather and Scott. I, both, I went to school, to East High School with both of them. They're great kids now great adults um and dotty was dotty was the uh you know the matriarch is is i think selling it short i mean she was the force in that family and i think she influenced dick throughout his career and i, I have a sneaking suspicion although he never said anything like this to me but that she was one of the forces behind his uh his feminist agenda and his civil rights for women agenda that resulted in in, in the uh, the abortion uh legalization law that you mentioned. And who was the driving influence on his infamous duty to die? I, of course, had to kid him about it, interviewing him in later years. Hey, you're in your late 70s now, Governor, whatever it was. And he got it from everybody, but you must have, did you ever kid him about that? You know, I did. I did. But uh, my dad, Arnie, did much more than I did. I think I only had an occasion or tell two. Tell us about uh, it. And tell your dad I want him on the show next time, too. I, w I will for sure. Uh, but I will tell the story about how, you know, and, and again, it, it, the story is funny because it really starts out with Dick being super serious about an issue that's super serious. And that was the, the impacts to our healthcare system of spending so much money uh, in the last few years of people's lives, and that it's it, it's really what drives the exorbitant cost of healthcare in this country and, and across the, the, the world. 
and then you know saying things like duty to die in the in the context of simply talking about the sustainability of our healthcare system is much different than just saying as a matter of principle in times come it's time for you to move on which is how it got characterized and, and what earned him his, his name as, as governor gloom um but i think you know later in life he did develop a sense of humor about it and embraced it um and, and you know i can still see him smiling when somebody would say that and uh, and it also would give him then the opportunity to say yeah so how do you propose that we fix our healthcare system so that the you know the 30 million people who are still without insurance are able to access health care. Uh, how are you going to do that without addressing the enormous cost that we spend on folks in their last couple of years of life? Always thinking about public policy. I hope his passing was peaceful. I mean, his memory is a blessing for everybody who knew him. I learned about it when I was in Austin, Texas, and it just affected me. I was thinking... he. I always smiled when I thought of uh, Dick Lamb, and I had reached out to him for the podcast and realized, my God, you know, how old is he? It's like when I was in Austin, Willie Nelson's 88 years old, but I I hope he didn't have to, you know, be put on any machines or anything like that. I don't want to get too personal. A lot of us wonder, was it COVID-related? But please tell us his passing was peaceful. Uh, from what his family tells me, yes, it was. It was. And and to answer your question, no, I did not think it was COVID-related. It was a pulmonary embolism, and I know that some folks with COVID have contracted that, but I don't I don't think that this was one of those cases. But yes, he he may have had a rough day, but most of the most of his last weeks were 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 good. I see this beautiful boy of yours, and his punum next to your father, Arnie. It's what a punum he's got, and you're a good-looking guy with nice teeth. I'm going to put that picture out there. What's your son's name again? It's Aiden, A-D-I-N. And do you have other children? I do. That's my youngest. Aiden is uh, 15, and I have a 16-year-old daughter. Her name's Leah, but she didn't come to the baseball game, so she didn't get her picture taken. Oh, my God. My kids are now 22. My 18-year-old's about to start college. and Wow. Uh, but in the age of COVID, it's tough. What's yeah. happening? You're the guy who works for the Environmental Defense Fund. Is that COVID-related? And give us some feeling of optimism. How are we going to get through all these crises, Dan? It's just going to take ordinary people to, to rediscover their sense of community. And that we're all connected and that, you know, it, it's not just about ourselves. It's it's about our neighbors. It's about our community. It's about finding ways that we can be kind to one another and responsible for our actions such that we're not polluting the planet. We're not spreading the disease. We're, we're actually, you know, putting our heads down and, and trying to figure out solutions. And, you know, that's that's the great tradition of this country. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll rediscover that and get back on the right track. Tikkun Olam, right? The great tradition of your father and the Jewish people, repair the world. I know that you are a part of it. Uh, I'm honored that you took the time to express yourself on so many things. Do you do that a lot? I don't notice big presence on social media, but maybe I'm missing it. No, I don't, uh, Craig, but I'm so glad that you reached out to give me the opportunity to 
to drone on and on about these things because no, I am. What a valuable just, voice you have, Dan. You're so smart, and I know behind the scenes you're working to make it a great uh, world for for Aiden and Leia, right? For sure, for sure. Doing my best, doing my best. But really a great honor that, that you would ask me to be on your podcast and happy to chat anytime. Well, thank you for coming back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge and uh, I will see you around campus. All right. Take care, Craig. All Thanks right. so much. Bye now. Bye-bye. Let me tell you what we do and we don't do at Springer and Steinberg. We do almost everything. We do not do end-of-life planning. That's Michael Bailey. But for all your other legal needs, give me a call. 303-861-2800. 303-861-2800. I look forward to speaking with you. Michael Bailey, you've been a lawyer for a decade and a half. I have that beat because I'm a lot older, but you and I have something in common. Uh, We both pride ourselves on being good attorneys, and I've shared with you a little list I have, 20 ways to be a good lawyer. Do you want to go through a few of these right now, and we'll keep going on future talks? What about number one, behave yourself? What does that mean to you? I mean, there's a whole slew of things that you can do as an attorney that are unbecoming or unseemly. You know, whether you break the ethical rules or if you just do things that are a little bit sneaky and underhanded, there's no need to do that. You do it the right way. You do it above board. They need a steady, reliable person like you. Give out your contact information. Sure. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. That's how you get a hold of me. I mean, my my website is michaelbaileylawllc.com. And again, that's michaelbaileylawllc.com. You can get a hold of me that way too. If you want to keep following this story, then please subscribe on whatever podcast medium by which you acquire this sound and then leave a positive review. More than anything, push the podcast to your friends. Let them listen. Thank you. This is such a cool design. Tell me about it. Well, I didn't know about it uh, because I wasn't uh, I was not the one that was going to come here with another person, mm-hmm. but they decided to put me here to run the store. And did you get special training for that? Yes. What did they put you to? Uh, well, I was a GM before. Um, I went to Chicago and everything. Um, and then I had my title, but um, I was working with them on December, the new company that bought John's. The last owner was John. Um, so it changed ownership? Yes. On December. Oh, that's it. After how many years, do you know? Probably a long time. Uh, like a year or two. Oh, is that all? Two, yeah. And is this, I've never seen McDonald's look like this. No, it's the first one. Yeah. In the country? I'm not sure in the country because they have a lot of stores. They have like 20 stores in total, the owners that we have right now. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
that's fascinating. And uh, like I say, the Luthers, is that their name? The Luthers? Yes. Mm -hmm. Please tell them that I'd love to speak with them. My phone number is right there. Okay, okay? I'll let them and, know. And I'll put on here, Colorado Sun. Because I'm a lawyer, but this has nothing to do with me being a lawyer. Although the courthouse is nearby, and uh, I have uh, had this uh, had witnesses come here because it's so close. Oh. Do you know Denver very well? Sort of. Mm -hmm. I mean, downtown, you probably do know where the courthouse is? And yes. Stuff like, okay, yes. yeah. They, anyway, it used to be closer. But my building right here at 1600 Broadway, as you can see. Okay. And so it's just, uh, is it encouraging everybody to use the app more? Yes. Uh, we have, uh, we tell them about the app, the loyalty program. We uh, want them to use the technology that we have, the kiosk. Right. You know, it's more faster for right. them to come and enter and then come and get their food. We're trying what if somebody it. doesn't have technology? They can still order. Yeah, they can still order. Or we, there's some of my crew that know how to work it, and they could teach them how to do it. I too. see. Mm -hmm. I see. And I have the app. I think it's amazing. Yes, it is. Do you have a to-go place here? or I saw a window. So there. the window, how we work, it's uh, the mobile or the DoorDash or Ubers. And when we close lobby, it's like a, instead of a drive-through, it's a walk-through drive-through. You order from here and then you get your food outside. What I think is amazing, because I go to the one on Broadway a lot coming in, is any McDonald's, I can go take a break, order an ice cream cone or they're given free french fries i mean it's crazy if you spend a dollar every yeah. day so i love the french fries who doesn't yeah. is there better food on earth than mcdonald's french fries no uh -huh. and you work here right? yes it's, I do. it's so delicious when there's fresh anyway and then somebody brings it to me yes it makes you feel like you can't yeah, special, yeah. Yes, yeah. and I don't see any of the other fast food places quite matching it. With the, the app works well. Yes, yes. Unlike uh, some others. Yeah. Right. So, um, what is like DC for? Just people to kind of rest? Yeah, the, when when there's like waiting for the food or their numbers, that's where they stand there or. Uh, we call if we see we're gonna be putting numbers on the table so right. when they put the number we go take them oh, to them oh i see mm -hmm. and what about the bathrooms that's a unique setup yeah what, what is the thought there um i think the thought was that because it used to be bad before right. and they used to go some people yes. and destroy the bathrooms yes. now we have security that come and see everything you know for families to come here and be safe and stuff like that and then they can see what's really happening. This McDonald's poses special challenges. Yes. Did you know that? Yes. And how did you know? They warned you or? Yeah, well, uh, before this, they started building this McDonald's, um, I used to work a long time ago on the old time. Um, right. And it was a lot, you know, and now it's, we're seeing the impact of the people when they come and see, oh, there's knives and everything, right. you know, as well as other people. You know, um, when the homeless comes, we try to treat them like customers too, you know. It's everybody, you know. It's for everybody. 
just you know for them to behave and everything do you was there once a second floor here or do you know the a long time ago there were uh, we still have one but it's not for eating or anything right. it's just like a basement where we put everything i away. see i see and so I, I just think, so if I order on the app, do I come here to get it or to the side window? Uh, it's, it's up to you. Sometimes they, they do the mobile order and they wait here, or sometimes they want to decide to go outside and, and where the window is, and then we just ask um, if you order something or you Uber or Dash. And, right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so the, the Uber or DoorDash people, they just come in, grab the bag, and do their thing? Yeah. With their just come and we ask for their numbers to verify that they don't get the wrong one and then we give it to them as well here as outside. It's a brave new world. Yes. And uh, so, yes, I, I, you are delightful. You are going to be treated well on the column and I see what you're trying to do and it's wonderful because this place just for whatever reason has always attracted an interesting mix but a lot of good people mixed in and you don't know and you treat everybody nice yeah and i'd love to talk to the luthers about this place yeah because i've been honestly just i bet this has been here 50 years yeah <laughs> i think you're not old enough to know but i i i can't remember when it was in here uh well I was here since I was 15. This, um, the owner that was, well, when I started here, he had this McDonald's. It was uh, Tom Carson. Uh -huh. Then Tom Carson sold it to John Ritchie, and then John Ritchie sold it to the Luthers. So, okay, think. so there's only been three owners. What I've known, yes. Okay. Well, that's fascinating. Yeah. I'd love to talk to the Luthers. Are they a Denver family or from out of town? Yes, they're, they're from Fort Collins, I think, because um, they have other McDonald's over there. So oh, I'd love to talk They to have them. seven stores here in Denver. And I'm telling you, I'm a, well, I have this going, but I'd show you my app. Mm -hmm. I love the app. Yeah. And I love McDonald's coffee, too. Why yeah. pay for Starbucks when it's a dollar here? Yeah. And I'm a senior now. I can get a provide. Yes, <laughs> you can. Well, Carla, you are wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. Okay. Have a good one. All right. Night. If you need anything, and, and feel free to... Please have the Luthers call me. I will. Okay. All right. Thank you. Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go. You know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the, the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey, because who should have this? It's probably somebody close 
Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right, and if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaeldailylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Tori, for agreeing to talk to me. I noticed you're at Broadway and Ellsworth in Denver. You're a beautiful young woman. I've spoken enough to you to know that you're smart. You're organized. What's going on? How long have you been living here? Oh, I've um, I've been in this area uh, since the end of last year. 24-7? Um, well, yeah, I've been... Um, homeless for since October of last year but um, I've been in this area for about a month or so, so. I've noticed you on this corner that's why I stopped I drive by here like a lot of people do every day from downtown and I just wanted to make sure you're doing okay you seem pretty organized but it must be frightening at night I would think um, yeah, uh, for the most part, I have a great experience with the people that I meet, with um, passerbys, with tourists, with um, local residents, and with other homeless people. But um, I, I'm initially working on a project called the Free Housing Project, where I give homeless people actual skills and then um, involve them in building their own community. I did a little bit of research on homelessness and. Um, a lot of it is drug addiction, but some of it is lack of pride of ownership. So a lot of these people don't know what it's like to own something and care for it. So we see a lot of carelessness. We see a lot of people trashing our city. We see a lot of um, degeneration because of that population. So in order to um, clean that up and solve that problem, um, I hope to build a, a, a large apartment building um, hopefully where Gates Rubber Factory used to be, right at I-25 and Broadway, and um, give people managerial contracting, um, electrician skills, and then um, involve recycled materials with the newest tech and have them actually build their own complex. Wow. You are so well-spoken. Uh, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Littleton. I'm a second-generation native. Um, my dad grew up in Park Hill. He's the fifth of eight children. And um, my grandparents, or my Nana Shirley was an English teacher, and then she owned a small business called The Papery. A lot of people are probably familiar. Um, and I notice you have a tribute to your mom there. Oh, yeah, yeah. It has to do with a little memory I have of her uh, when I was really little. Is but... she passed now? Or um, is she still alive? 
Oh, no, yeah, it just has to do with um, a memory I have of her when I was young. I see. But, Are you, do, um, do your parents know, does your family know you're out here? What are they, they must be worried about you, Tori. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it should be very temporary. Um, I, um, I know this area is being gentrified and also, um, uh, also the homeless population is, is uh, dwindling. So hopefully we can take care of that issue. The, the affluent population in Colorado always has a problem giving, giving people money because they don't know where it will go. But right. if I give them a tangible project to invest in, it could be very successful. Well, I want to uh, make sure that Tori's okay. Tell me about your setup here. Has you always been this organized or oh, everything yeah. must have its purpose? You have hydration there? Yeah, a lot of people give me water. I have a, a bag of food. Do people give you have, food? Um, yeah, I have uh, hygiene products. Um, people usually stop by and ask me what I need specifically and then... What about hygiene? How do you take care of that? Um, I have a couple friends in the area who let me use their showers and... That's nice. Yeah, absolutely. So I can be somewhat presentable, but um, yeah, that's, that's probably the toughest part of, of the situation. It almost seems like you're trying to make a statement by locating one single woman here on Broadway and elsewhere. Yeah, tr well traditionally this is, well historically this is where the farmers lived, but traditionally in, in my um, in my time it's, it's kind of a red light district. So um, yeah, it's um, some people can see it as a statement. Um, I see it as being at the center of Denver, being in a, a very central location where um, I get along well with a lot of the people in this area. I don't think you could be more central. <laughs> yeah, I, I literally think this is the cent center of Denver. Right. So, uh, what happened that uh, after Littleton, did you go to Littleton High or a different school? I actually graduated from Columbine. Okay. Yeah, um, and that was um, a normal high school experience. And then I went to Metro State out of high school for photography. And then I was in a really bad car accident my freshman year. So it took it took about 10 years to rehabilitate. I, um, I worked at Starbucks for six years and then got into the cannabis industry. And that got a little bit dangerous, a little cutthroat. Um, so, was that pre-legalization or post-legalization? Um, right as, in 2010, so right as they were developing the, the, um, the industry and the laws. And, right. Um, I was able to get my red card uh, for migraines after the car accident and then um, started working for a contract trim company. Did you uh, recover anything from Peter? Yes, yeah, so okay. Sure. Yeah, so much. She's, she's wonderful. Thanks for checking. Um, that's one of the guys who likes in on you? Or? Oh, um, I think he works at Sputnik. At the... Sputnik? Yeah, I'm pretty sure he works at the restaurant. Oh, I see. Yeah. You call this a red light district. What did that mean? I wasn't aware of that. Oh, um, from what I've learned, there were theater and um, it's kind of known for being a little bit edgy in that way but um, I think all of Denver is uh, um, witnessing um, all sorts of influence from um, corporate real estate and also um, residents longtime residents who want to just improve their community so.
That, that's what I see happening. I see a lot more families. I see a lot of people with their dogs. I see like a very healthy, um, basic Colorado culture being uh, born here. So. And what about uh, food? Are you getting bio camp food wise? Yeah. Um, like I said, uh, it's pretty. Uh, people are used to seeing homelessness in this area, so it's kind of customary for people to to leave their leftovers when they go out to eat or go to a restaurant so a lot of times that that's what will happen I'll, I'll um i'll uh wake from a meditation and i'll see like a box from sputnik or i'll be able to try like the new the new pizza spot giordano's right down the street so um yeah and it's it's like Do you have any qualms about eating somebody's leftover pizza or meal um kind of i mean it's not it's not um it's not, I don't see it as like a bad thing. It's it's mostly probably the health risks as far as COVID goes, but I imagine anyone with that that, that condition wouldn't put me at risk in that way, so. Well, that's pretty interesting. Let's talk about COVID. Yeah. I'm worried for you. Yeah, no, I, uh, my friend Tony said something about the Delta. Yes, variant, um, yeah. yeah, exactly, and it's, um, I, I think possibly, I, well, I definitely have to get a mask, and then I think vaccinations are are most likely the, the safest way to go in that regard. What about the heat? Today's not the worst day, but we've had near 100 since you've been here a month. How do you deal with that? Yeah, we've had um, some pretty, pretty hot weather, but um, I guess we're in a monsoon season, so I also see a lot of rain. And this umbrella is your shield? Yeah, the umbrella works for both sun and, and rain. So. Did somebody give you that, or did you have the old Dominion University umbrella? Oh, um, yeah, my friend Derek got it from Goodwill, actually. Oh, that's nice. It's yeah. a lifesaver. What about, you said you had migraines at some point, and I would have trouble with all the noise here at this busy intersection. What about you? Yeah, no, that's that's the most difficult part, is the, the kind of bombardment, but... Um, I have uh, earphones and I have a, a radio. I have a radio that I listen to, Colorado Public Radio. So it's like it's, it's relaxing. It, it, it helps. A transistor radio. It helps to juxtapose the noise. I haven't in this seen area. a transistor radio in a while. Oh, yeah, I don't know exactly what it is. Not not too educated about radios, but it's just like. Oh, that's cool. A little armband radio. Right. That, it's that FM 90.1, the uh, NPR station, probably. Oh, well, I actually, it's 88.1, which okay. is the Colorado Public there Radio. There are a lot of options yeah. when it comes to public radio. Well, this is cool. Yeah, I'm, that's great. I'm probably going to include you in a column I'm going to write for the Colorado Sun, which is online, but I may print it out oh. and bring you a copy. What, what oh, would you yeah, want people cool. to know in Colorado about why Tori is on this corner. Do you want me to use your real name, Tori? Um, yeah, my name my name is Victoria Smith, my full name. So you can... Victoria Smith, God yeah. bless you. Yeah, absolutely. I just, um, especially to the locals, want to say hang in there and and um, stay true to, to the Colorado that we love. And um, hopefully we can make it through this population growth and, and still sustain our, our high quality of life and our... Our, um, healthy what, what is making you homeless? Why can't you get a job at one of these businesses? Or that's uh, an option, absolutely. So um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Um, we'll see how uh, the situation 
um, we'll see the path that it takes and we'll see um, where I end up. But yeah, that's that's absolutely an option. And, and I've, I've um, been building relationships with business owners in the area, so. Well, you have my card now. I'd love to yeah. see you succeed because that's, Colorado natives need to stick together. I think so too. And one thing we know about what's gonna happen next, it's gonna get colder. So have you thought about that? Would you do this during the winter? Have you gone through any cold patches of homelessness? Um, uh, yeah, uh, so last winter I did and I, um, the only threat there was frostbite. I just had, would have to get um, the right gear to make it through, but um, hopefully I'll have a house by then. You told me you wanted this to be a rags to riches story. Y yeah. That's your praise. Tell me how you came up with that. Um, it's, it's purely circumstantial. I never expected to be in this situation, um, uh, but the, the bright side of, of it, or turning it into a positive thing, means a, a kind of a rags to riches uh, situation, or ultimate culmination of, of uh, what's going on in my life. So, um, and, and I noticed coming up here and you talked about it, meditation. Oh, how often do you do it? Is it helpful? And how can you do it here on this busy intersection? Oh, yeah. Um, I consider myself advanced as far as meditation goes. And um, it's extremely difficult to do, especially in our um, American society. Everybody's kind of go, 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 and nobody really stops. But it's um, extremely beneficial. Uh, I consider myself an introvert. So being able to recharge my batteries in that way is is essential so um yeah so doing it here is um is extremely challenging and it's it's um you don't seem introverted to me you are very open candid friendly you allowed me to take these videotapes of you so I, I, how the contradiction is it do you have anxiety around others or um uh, not really i i um, I um, worked at Starbucks, and I think that helped me uh, develop the not really uh, conversational skills. I think that that happened more so with my friend, my friend group. But um, being able to speak kind of publicly on a regular basis and more uh, a more relaxed environment, I think, is what I gained from Starbucks. Right, but your average person on the streets, homeless, we think, is uneducated. You are educated, correct? some college um yeah some college so and i um during my rehabilitation period i was able to really figure out what i wanted to do and then i ended up with a 10-year curriculum that i hope to complete it at denver university so. can i ask how old you are i'm 32 and do you the question I wanted to ask was, uh, a lot of people think people on the streets have mental health issues. I don't think you do. You say you're introverted, but that's that's not apparent, and you seem to uh, have your mental health intact. What would you say when people make that claim? Is that true? Uh, from my experience, um, it seems like the mental health uh, stems from being kind of um, on the outskirts of society. Um, personally, I've been diagnosed with depression, but I dealt with it holistically using meditation and diet and yoga. And um, 
yeah, so I do relate to the mental health issues and um, having experienced that myself, um, I can say that most of the other homeless people I've run into are, are uh, like veterans and I think that's probably where that stems from. Interesting. What about the claim that it's substance abuse? Alcohol, drugs, is that true, untrue? Um, yeah, the, the majority of the, the, I think it's about 10,000 or when I first did my research in I think 2016, the popula the homeless population in Denver was around 10,000 um, and the majority of it is uh, addiction, so. Um, stand over here to get the sun out of my face. Yeah, the, those are the most difficult cases, absolutely. Yes, uh, but you don't seem to have those issues. Uh, no, personally I don't. Um, I've been experimental in my life, just so I know what I'm talking about, but I've never been, I've never struggled with addiction, so. Um, well, good. Yeah. I personally don't have the, the resources or the background to help um, those people, but um, I know that a lot of people are kind of forced into this situation, having undergone that myself, so. And, uh, do you need a mask? I have a, I don't know if you yes. like those. Do you want those? That would be great. Okay, I'm going to get you some masks. And I'm worried about you and COVID. Are you vaccinated? Um, it's on my list. Absolutely. You would be vaccinated if given an opportunity? Yeah, um, last, the last round, I was able to get at, like, Walgreens and Safeway. They were doing it, so I'm yes. hoping that happens again. And you would take the vaccination if they gave it to you? Um, uh, yeah, if, it, they ha if I had another opportunity like that, that would be beneficial. I, uh, I'm not sure if they're giving it out, but uh, God bless you, Tori. And uh, like I say, I'll be in touch, okay? I want nothing but the best for you. Thank you. Same to All you, right. Greg. It was Take nice to care. meet you. My pleasure. Thank you. Here we are. Oh, boy. That puts things in perspective, huh? Wow, when you've been practicing law for almost 40 years like me, you learn a thing or two. If you have a legal problem, give me a call, 303-861-2800. At Springer and Steinberg, we do all kinds of law. Call me, 303-861-2800. We will help solve your problem. Thank you. My troubadour, Dave Gunders, you've been in Colorado a long time, long enough to remember the late, great Governor Dick Lamb. I sure do. He must have been your kind of guy. I had the pleasure of knowing him, but he came from out of state, attracted by the mountains, just couldn't believe the beauty. He did all the mountain sports, and he was young at heart, just like you. Wow. Yeah, he was. Um, I, I, you know, I didn't follow politics. I mean, he was he was the governor during my my uh, I think during my college years and in, in and uh, and after in the eighties, right? I mean, he was three. He had three. Did he have three terms? It was, yeah, he had three terms, but it was even earlier than that. Were you here when we got the Olympics? But we said no, thank you. Dick Lamb said no, thank you. Yes, that would have been. Let's see. Th so that would have been uh, right around seventy two, seventy three. Right. Yeah. 
We voted, right, we voted down the Olympics. Right. Did you vote? I, I wanted the Olympics. You darn right. In retrospect, good call, bad call by Dick Lamb? I still want the Olympics. I do think it would be cool, but my God, we don't have the infrastructure. You know, yeah. Sorry, Craig, to interrupt, but no, it, it was but, kind of a Colorado was going through kind of an isolationist time. That that's what it was. You know, there was the whole. The, I remember hearing the term back then, Californification, Californication, yeah, right? Nasty, yeah, no, no. Californication, and right. it, it, Colorado was there were too many people moving right. here. And don't that was, Californicate Colorado, but it's inevitable. Look how we've grown. Dick Lamb could only hold off things for so long. But he thought about a lot of things, and he thought about death and dying. Do you remember when he got in trouble for talking about old people have a duty to die? No. No, I didn't oh, He was that. talking about the cost of health care and that a lot of expenses went to keeping really old people alive. And thank God he didn't have to go through it. And he talked about old people at a certain point. We can't you know, replace a hip of a 98-year-old. And he got in trouble for it, and now he's passed away. But he was a good guy, and he wasn't a hypocrite. And even as he got older, he could take the joke about that. Yeah, and I'm down with what he said on that, too. I mean, we have to, we have to move over at some point in our lives. Make room. I'm surprised you've even thought about that, because you don't think about things all that much. You're Mr. Oblivious, and you even wrote a song testifying to that very fact. Am I right? You're right, but and the only time I think about it is when we go for our walks and you remind me of our mortality, Craig. No, but you wrote this fantastic song called Don't Think About It Much, which people will listen to. I think it's another classic, beautiful Dave Gunder song, but you're talking about the great issues of the day and you're saying, I don't think about it much, but you thought about it enough to write a song kind of about it. That's the paradox. Yeah, that one was very recent. I just wrote that. Uh, having spoken with my uh, my my younger daughter Rachel about her philosophy class, and uh, we were talking about the philosophers, and and I said I, I don't think about it that these big questions. I don't think about it much. And then the, the, the phrase came to me, and then I realized that in fact, yes, to write a song like that, you have to think about it some. Right. It's the meaning of life. What's the meaning of life? I don't know. Next question, but. Those philosophy classes, they can spin you around. I could see that wasn't your style, but this is such a beautiful song. And once again, you're talking about heaven. Are you feeling okay? Are you thinking about the next world? (laughs) Not yet. No, I'm fully entrenched in, in life. So what is your concept of the next world? Because you have in the song, somebody going up to heaven. Do you envision that? It's one scenario. I, I certainly don't envision heaven as uh, in the in the uh, classic form of you know going up and you know flying around with the angels and playing a harp. And if I played harp, it would be the blues harp. I like your attitude. There are some things that are unknowable, but I'd like to know about the music here. Are you playing all the parts here? Because that's incredible. I think that's just just me. Yeah, it was a very simple uh, song, just a guitar, and then I played a, another guitar kind of behind it halfway through. Oh, and then I played bass, and at the end, now that I think about it, um, I hit this little this uh, this big old floor tom, and ga- it gave it almost a a gong sound. We're end. gonna listen to it, but right at the start, and you end up singing about it. if you had a bell, you would ring it, and isn't the opening sound kind of a bell like sound? Well, I hadn't thought about that. It's it's, it's a, a strong opening, right? 
That's a guitar chord introduction. I know, but you make the guitar and your harmonica sound like other instruments to me. Like at the end, it sounds like a flute, but that's a harmonica? No, that is a flute. That's a recorder. It's actually a a recorder. The the kind of the thing we all played when we were in fifth grade. (laughs) How many different instruments did you play on this? Well, there was that recorder, and I can't really say I play that. I struggled through that part. But it was just the guitars, and then there was a there was an African shaker that I bought when I was down in New Orleans. And the drum, the special drum. What kind of drum? That's a floor tom, and I just I uh, I wrapped a rag around a drumstick and and uh, rubber band it so it wouldn't have a, a sharp attack, and I just barely touched the top of this big floor tom so it just kind of reverberates like thunder in the distance. It's so cool. But I like the words in the song. And who will tell this story? That's a little Hamiltonian, right? Who will tell our story? Who will tell his story? Well, his story's being told. And it makes you contemplate about eternity, what happens when you die. But as you and I discuss on our walks, if you want to live forever, have kids, right? That's that's the way to do it. Well, it's about the closest we can come. I think so. And then I like your concept of make it shine. And I know where this phrase comes from. And I want you to tell the story one more time. Life is short. Going to live it up. I plagiarized that from a, a plaque that we visit. Uh, it's on a bench down along near, the Highline Canal. Along the Highline Canal, and uh, the um, the bench is it's it's the plaque says "Life is short, live it up," and it's by um, a person, Tyson Kennedy, who we have we have um, we have discussed uh, for years uh, who, who this Tyson Kennedy might have been, and who would have who would have um, you know who 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 would who would have created this memorial to Tyson. And it turns out that I actually ended up meeting Tyson Kennedy. Not dead, not male, not dead. Beautiful woman, and. It's an incredible story. We've told it before, but we've never played this song. Don't think about it much. Beautiful song, beautiful lyrics by our troubadour, David Gunders. You ask me what I make of this. What's our fate? Where are we going? Make no difference what I guess. We got no way of knowing Don't think about it much Don't think about it Don't think about it much If I die before I wake Find my way Heaven's glory Another soul Take my place, but who will tell my story? Don't think about it much. Don't think about it. Don't think about it much. Cause I got this voice, and so I sing. Got me a bell, man, I'm gonna ring it. Share my joys, bear my sorrows Worry 
tomorrow Don't think about it much Think about it Don't think about it much Think about it much about it. catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Hey, thanks to everybody, especially our troubadour. That was a fantastic song. Don't you think? Don't think about it much? I'm going to be thinking about that song for a long time. And my interview with Dan Grossman, which was special. Thanks, Dan, for your time. Carla Carrillo and Victoria Smith, Tori. You taught me stuff, and I like your spirit, both of you. Thank you for trusting me to tell your story. Thank you for listening, everybody. Till next time, have a great week. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.